Good evening, everybody. This is the next edition of ARCS Chat. I am John Robinette, here with the co-host, Ms. <laughs> Amanda Robinson. Uh, Robin, our third co-host, is on a much-deserved vacation, so it's just the two of us tonight steering the ship. Uh, as a reminder, there is a 20-second delay between the chat and what appears on YouTube. So if you have a question, please be patient with our response. Tonight, we host Michelle Miller-Fisher, the Curator of Contemporary Decorative Arts at the MFA Boston, and also co-founder of the Art and Museum Transparency Collective uh, that started in May of 2019. The group is responsible for the viral Google Doc that famously passed around that got famously passed around last summer and exposed the salaries of many top museum employees as well as crowdsourced the salaries and benefits of museum professionals in general and not just those in the art world. It also started a separate public document exposing institutions offering unpaid internships again through crowdsourcing. Evening. In our discussion this evening, uh, we're going to examine the labor issues that are occurring uh, rampantly throughout the industry and how they pertain to collections stewardship. Uh, we're also going to look at them in the broader context as well uh, and what they mean for the industry. So, uh, Michelle, welcome tonight. Welcome to the discussion. And uh, we're greatly looking forward to uh, what you have to say uh, along, along these lines. So. Uh, typically, what we do to, to get started is we talk a little bit about what's going on. And I'm just thinking right now, I, uh, what's going on in general with um, with the industry and what we're doing personally. But I was just thinking recently with just this earthquake that we had on this morning uh, in a previous ARCS chat, uh, we, we hosted uh, Chiquita Santiago from Puerto Rico. And she talked about disaster recovery after Hurricane Maria. And I've just been following her on Twitter. Uh, she's actually not in Puerto Rico at the moment, but uh, I was just thinking about her when I saw that they had a series of, of earthquakes there. So it was just, uh, they just can't get a break with their, their disasters. Um, anything uh, come across your plate uh, these days, Amanda? Oh, well, personally, we're in the middle of a deinstall, so I'm real tired. <laughs> and we, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with, actually, you might be familiar with this, Michelle, because the artist we're hosting is actually a design professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her name's Jennifer Angus, and she does large-scale installations with insects in the most beautiful patterns. Wow. It is lovely, and we're one of the largest venues that she's installed at the moment. She installed the Renwick in 2015 when they reopened their galleries. And um, so I've spent a lot of time on Monday and Tuesday taking down a lot of different, very large insects. And she's at Madison, Wisconsin? Mm hmm at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. Artists of recent findings, Helen Lee is also there. She's a glass artist. I think she's chair of the glass program there. So it's a great oh, um, Fantastic. I'm very happy to learn of Jennifer's work. I will look it up. <laughs> um, so that's what I've been up to. How about you, Michelle? Like, what, what are you working on outside of? I am working stuff? on a number of things. We've got a couple of installations kicking off next week. I'm doing some rotations of light sensitive work, talking collections management. Um, and I'm excited to do that. I'm going to bring in a new Roberto Lugo piece that my predecessor, a very smart art historian and curator, Emily Zilber, brought into the collection at the MFA a couple of years ago. 
so that'll go on display um, next week. I'm also putting together a library that lots of different community members have shaped on the topic of uh, climate sustainability, the environment and nature. And so it's um, books for all ages and stages um, in different languages, in Braille, um, trying to create a space that people can dwell and stop in. Um, and I've actually just been looking at the history of design of um, bags, of receptacles, because I, I think mm. of those as a, a lens through which we often have conversations about what is sustainable, or what's a good choice. And at the moment in Boston, we're talking about a citywide ban on the plastic bag that very few people know. Um, the design history of that or the paper bag that preceded it or the string bag of the 1920s um, or the tote bag actually um, which is often talked about as the uh, sustainable method of uh, carrying your shopping but is proliferating en masse and is really actually as unsustainable as um, uh, plastic bags in so many ways so that's what I'm looking at just now creating a little between of those. Have you seen um this uh, this phenomenon that's happening right now in Thailand, because as of the new year, they they banned uh, plastic bags there. And now people are taking household objects like ceramic vases or whatever. They find <laughs> they're, they're, they're putting handles on them and making them into into tote bags. It's pretty, oh, pretty great. amazing. No, I'm going to look it up. I've just been totally fascinated by this. I mean, often when I think about and one of the receptacles I wanted to put out was um, from a Native American community, because when I think about sustainability in North America, at least, I think indigenous um, uh, methods of sustainability, indigenous relationships to the land are the ground zero of talking about that here um, and so I want to foreground that somehow but all of the objects that we have it's in a humongously light sensitive area and um, I'm speaking to one of our experts here at the museum who um, knows a huge amount about Native American cultures and she was saying well you should use a burden basket and then I asked um, one of our conservators and they're like you cannot use a burden basket <laughs> and so there's always that balance between what you want to show and what you know audiences will miss if you don't show it um, and then what you can show because you want to be careful of works that should be here for a long time yeah well we appreciate you taking uh, collections care into <laughs> yes <laughs> account across the conservatives ever I will always do what I'm told <laughs> <laughs> so um well talking collections care let, let's uh let's talk about it in uh, in in this context that uh, that we have here um so you are involved obviously a lot a lot and you actually have a book that's on a separate top, topic called designing motherhood which mm. uh, I encourage everybody listening to explore um in another, in another time, maybe we could explore that. But sure, for sure. now, um, how did you actually get involved with this Art Museum Transparency Collective? Or how did you found it, co-found yeah, it? So it was, it's very much, and I should say, I'm here as a public face of this collective, but it's absolutely team effort from the very beginning to where we are now. Um, and it was founded at the end of May 2019. And it really came out of a group of colleagues, friends, some of us knew each other more than others. Um, one night we were talking about uh, a couple of folks who were at some stage of applying for jobs and um, that, that very thorny question of what to put on your cover letter as a salary requirement came up. And um, 
we talked about it. I mean, these are people who are, you know, as, as most people who we meet in our daily lives are now, museum or not, highly qualified, really fantastic at their jobs. And, um, you know, even, you know, a decade or so, sometimes more into their career, they still weren't really sure what they were worth. They had no way to measure that, no benchmark for it. And so um, I started talking about, and as I have done for a very long time, um, when I do any kind of careers talk, I'm pretty open about what I've made in different moments of my life both in museums and also in the shadow resume that I've had since I was 14 years old, you know, pot washing, nannying, cooking, doing many, many other things. And that's what has supported my possibilities of working in the arts as it has for so many other people. And out of that conversation, when we all started sharing these different numbers and it gave context and real help and collegiality and solidarity around this question, um, I think because most of us had had two glasses of something um, because it was at a bar, we thought, oh, you know, we should share this. And so on the way home, one of my friends was driving and I have Google Drive on my phone. And I thought, you know, we'll just make it. And we did. Um, we collectively um, fashioned a very rudimentary Google Doc and um, circulated amongst ourselves and a couple of colleagues that evening. But then the next day, um, I posted it on my Instagram. And I also, very importantly, I think this was a good turning point in it, although there were lots of places that um, helped along the way. But I'm a student at the CUNY Graduate Center. And there's a really wonderful listserv in the art history department of very politically aware, very thoughtful people. And I sent it out there and I felt a little worried about doing that, first of all. But then um, very quickly, people responded, added in, sent it around. And we could see um, within a couple of hours, it expanding line by line, row by row. Um, so much so actually that within a couple of days, we had to put a Google form in, in the front of it because um, folks were uh, adding in and we didn't want people to be deleting other people's work. Right, right. Mm. You did have that problem though, right? There yes, was a, we had a moment in time where, and I don't, it definitely wasn't malicious. I don't think so. We don't think so. Um, I just think people have varying levels of proficiency with Google Docs. Right, right. <laughs> so there were a couple of people who got involved and then didn't really know how to fill it out perfectly. Um, and we just didn't want to, you know, you know, wanted a way that, you know, people could choose whether or not to um, put in their information. They could decide how much they wanted to share and, and they could be safe and comfortable in a way that made sense for them. Um, but then they couldn't mess with anybody else's either intentionally or not. Um, and so, yeah, we, we did that um, mostly for our own sake so we wouldn't have to go back through version histories. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. So. Yes. But that's really the founding of it. It was um, a moment in time and um, among friends of co and colleagues, some of whom I don't think will be anonymous forever, but um, I do think that many of them, I mean, I think we all are in the US given the labor laws here um, in contingent positions, but um, many people are in deeply contingent positions in, you know, term positions in um, places where they rely on their supervisor for um, the next reference letter, places where um, they're in, you know, museums are, for all of their progressive politics, they can come, sometimes be deeply conservative places. And some of them are very early on in their careers, and uh, it would be quite devastating for them to um, you know, either have the first thing that's Googled about them to be about labor, because that's not always palatable for a future employer. Right. Um, or, you know, just um, exposing in a way that was different for me at a different stage in my career and a different, um, uh, and also, yeah, I, I have been writing about this for a while. So it's not something that I feel um, 
would have been as damaging necessarily. Yeah. So this, this topic for you didn't start in May of 2019. No, and I don't think for anyone in the group. I think everyone. I'm, I'm, I'm so um, lucky to get to collaborate with the people in this group. Um, they come from lots of different places and backgrounds. Um, I learn a lot from them um, because they bring different ideas and different expertises to the table. Um, for me personally, I have written in this area for a long time. I've written about uh, unpaid internships. I've written about parenting and labor at work um, for about six, seven, eight years. Um, not. In in um, any loud way. I'm not a New York Times columnist. Again, probably never will be <laughs> because we pull the New York Times um, a fair amount in our Twitter feed. But um, yeah, it's been something that whenever I can, I've written and spoken about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the the, the rest of the group? Um, I mean, we all want to know who they are, but I mean, tell, <laughs> tell us tell us what's, what's behind the uh, anonymity. Sure, this is not going to be the moment in time of a big reveal. Um, although I do think that um, folks will decide at, at some point that they may want to speak more publicly and that will be great because they have so much to um, offer and they, and they do. I mean, the um, Twitter feed is collaboratively moderated and written, although I would say there are two main protagonists who do a lot of the writing and I love the way they write um, and they're really fantastic. So we split the, um, the duties that we have, you know, fairly evenly, although sometimes folks take on more and less depending. Um, and yeah, we, we run a Twitter feed, which is, I think, just hit 3,000 followers today. Um, and we really try to keep that as a place where we can amplify other people's messages, where we can um, maintain sort of a, a, an understanding of what's happening, at least within the Twitter sphere, in terms of news around art and labor and um, larger, you know, labor organizations like unions. Um, we also think about next steps and we are, you know, are planning forward in terms of when to release a spreadsheet, when to think about an op-ed. And it's always with the idea of making sure that we're again, amplifying this conversation. It's not really about pointing the um, conversation back to us, but to make sure as, you know, our Walker Reader piece was um, a way to point out others who are doing really interesting, important work in this field, like Christy Coleman or thinking about Chaudry Le Bouvier at the Guggenheim um, or thinking about the union drives that have happened or decolonize this place or the work of um, museo punks or the art and labor podcast. Um, the folks who have been having this conversation a lot you know, earlier than we have. And we mentioned always, for example, Kimberly Blue and Power Arts in the Salary Survey, Joshua Bolt, who is the person who did the adjunct project for um, salary survey spreadsheets, you know, way before I think any of us were thinking about this. Right, right. I mean, how is your own job view what you do? I mean, do they just give you a raise and just say, <laughs> say no, <laughs> don't out us? <laughs> no, I have to say, um, I feel really lucky to be where I work currently. Yeah. I feel really supported. Um, I'm in a very privileged position and I am a curator. I'm, I don't have a contingent term position at the moment. Right. Um, as long as I work hard and I produce the things that I'm meant to produce and I'm a good colleague, um, is a different life actually than being a curatorial assistant, which I was a couple of years ago where that was a term position. And even though I had an amazing mentor and it was a wonderful thing to work at the museum I was working at, um, I exist in a very different way right now. That's not to say I couldn't get fired immediately. And, you know, I, that can happen to any of us, most right. of us in the U.S. We were hard and fired at will. Um, and I'm very sure that um, I, you know, I, 
I'm never confrontational with the institutions that I work for because I wouldn't work for them if I felt badly about them. Right. Um, I think my ethics are pretty clear, actually, and pretty transparent about them. I wouldn't be able to work for an institution that I didn't actually feel had an inherent good for society to it. And so I don't feel um, in any way bad about working for museums. and certainly not this one. I love it. Um, and I, I think that my employers know that. Right. That being said, I'm very clear, not vocal, not confrontational, but just clear and firm about the ethics that I hold. And so, you know, today I again said I can't work on this project because it involves an unpaid intern. And that's great, actually, because most of my colleagues agree that those things shouldn't be. And right. so we then were able to get to a place where we said, OK, well, how could I actually have a paid intern on this project? Right. And I'm not the voice of sole voice of reason in any room ever. Um, and I'm not the only person thinking about these things. Um, and I'm not the first person either. So I, I, I have a, I have so far touch wood um, <laughs> relationship where I work. Good, good. You, you bring up an interesting point when you say that you um, chose to express that you didn't want to work on a project because there wasn't a paid internship wasn't paid internship associated with it. And the article that you, actually, I'm sorry, the blog post that I think Art Museum Transparency posted earlier in December about um, the following year and the changes that were gonna be coming, you had mentioned about putting together like a toolkit so that people can take, um, you know, we have these ideas, we have these feelings that we want to make happen, but we don't actually know how to implement that. And I think in general with the podcast that we do here, with arcs, we talk a lot like up here philosophically about how we want things to be or the standard we want to have. Um, and then we try to put that into um, practical application and try to show you how that looks in real life. And I think that the fact that you said you, you said that and it made a difference, like it made people stop and think, okay, well, maybe we need to reevaluate how we're setting up this project. Maybe it needs to be um, put together differently in a way that is more inclusive or will allow for someone to participate in it and be able to pay their rent or to actually be able to be in Boston, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a really good point. I'm glad you said, I'm glad you used that example. Yeah, it was, it's a really freeing moment. And again, I mean, it's, it's easier for me to say it in some ways, I think as a curatorial assistant, it would have been more difficult perhaps, but at the same point in time, um, I didn't zip my mouth then either. <laughs> um, I just think it was, uh, yeah, who knows what people thought of me then, but um, I do think it's, when we wrote the op-ed, and this was a collective op-ed that we wrote, I think, um, for art, both art and art, and art news, um, we listed a, a list of um, things that people could talk about when they talk about internships. They can, you know, we, we said, you know, which points on this list do you think you can hit? Um, the first being like, never work with an unpaid intern, like just say no. Um, mm -hmm. You can't do that because of whichever position you occupy in the museum in your own agency. Can mm -hmm. you? Um, talk to someone who's in an unpaid internship can you talk to a supervisor can you talk to a peer like what is it that you can do in terms of offering professional development to someone so they don't take another internship? Um, and we just saw today actually the Guggenheim came out um, I used to be the internship coordinator at the Guggenheim 15 years ago that was my job um, I was an unpaid intern there beforehand it's hell a lie I got a thousand dollar stipend that year it was the only unpaid un uh, low paid internship I've ever been able to do it was my only internship really um, and they paid between $500 and $1,000 to some interns when I was there. Mm. They just came out today saying they're paying $5,250, uh, uh, $5, mm. $5, $5, just over $5,000 to 
for a summer internship now for the first time ever at the Guggenheim. They're going to be paid at stipend, which again isn't at King's Ransom, but it's amazing in terms of um, a, a stipend amount for a summer. I think one can sort of get by in New York on that stipend, which changes the game for diversity, for thinking about who gets to participate in these systems. So um, yeah, there, there are lots of people now thinking about this. I know my own institution is. Um, I think me saying that in a meeting in a year from now will probably not be as uh, radical an idea. In fact, it might just be quite boring and, or in fact, maybe it just won't need to be said anymore, which would be great. I think, I think you, you kind of hint at uh, something that we were curious about and that's like, how do you define uh, success or like what are the goals of the organization it seems like in this case for example you know encourage you know strongly or forcefully um uh you know i guess i i don't I, shaming sounds like it's too harsh but maybe it's not uh, organizations into actually you know creating paid internship programs and, and all of this stuff yeah. um that yeah go ahead I think it's about making things just seem like they should be. And so, again, we are not the first people to say this at all. Um, and uh, we're not the first people, you know, we, we haven't implemented it. Kudos to the Guggenheim for implementing that because it takes a ton of conversations with HR, with your donors, with your director, with the rest of education, trying to figure out how to implement it to get a whole entire museum on board to have that happen. It's a lot of work. And so, um, you know, yeah, massive kudos to something like that. I think in terms of success, I think making sure that these ideas are just continually spoken about until they don't need to be spoken about anymore. And very much in the same vein as the kind of research I love to do within design and social material cultural history is a kind of knowing your rights in a way um, and making people aware of the rights that they already have and the conversations that they should already be having with their peers and their colleagues. So in women's health, that means being able to talk about everything from your own contraception and your need for um, abortions and, and, and agency around your own health care to um, being able to have parental leave that is going to allow you to continue on in whatever successful career path you want to have, um, be that working in your home, working outside your home, working in any way. And it's the same thing for labor as it comes into the museum, knowing that you can share your salary um, is, you know, something that I actually had to Google to make sure I wasn't doing anything illegal before we sent out that first spreadsheet. And of course we weren't, but I didn't know that. And I was 37 years old. Like I, I wasn't young and in my first job, I was quite seasoned in my profession and still had to figure out if that was an okay thing to do. And of course it opens up legions of possibilities when you know, I, I, no, no one I know in museums came in to make money. So no one's sitting there thinking, oh, well, you know, if I knew this, then I'd be able to fleece the museum for every last penny that they have. People just want to be able to have a living wage. And so success means being able to empower people with knowledge that they already should be able to access, but perhaps just don't know how. And I think success really is then solidarity, being able to create networks between people and to be able to think not just as an individual, but as a collective of people um, who are working towards similar um, goals. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, along these lines, I mean, I think, so one of the things you wrote about recently in December was, you know, your plans of what to do with the data. Can you, um, 
This was in the, the medium article that came out in early December. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit on that in terms of like, because this is a treasure trove. Now. Yeah, totally. Um, so when we wrote the um, article at the end of December, the kind of 2019 year in review as AMT as a collective, we wrote that we were going to close the two spreadsheets that we'd opened um, this year. Last year, I should say now, um, one, the first salary spreadsheet, which had around 3,300 entries in the end, and then the unpaid internship spreadsheet, which had just over 300 entries in the end, and really rich textual responses, actually, in both, but in particular, the internship one. And um, we decided to close them at the end of the year because we thought that they were um, documents of a particular moment in time, those uh, uh, Salaries won't always be current. In fact, they're probably you know, going to be uh, not very current very soon. But as you say, they're treasure troves of um, data and information. It's really imperfect information in many ways if you were to think about it through a true data statistician's lens because we are not that, um, nor did we ever pretend to be. And we certainly didn't drunk on two glasses of wine on the way home making that first spreadsheet um, create the perfect survey tool by any means. Um, but I do think that it's rope for people to take on. And so what we've asked is we close them on December 31st and we've asked anyone who would like to have a copy of the data, if they can just allow us to, on a tab, um, identify them and we can identify either them or their organization, or we can consider them anonymous if there's a good reason, and then to um, publicly define what they're going to do with the data and then share it back. Um, we'd love people who have data specializations to help us crunch some of this or to in some way reflect some of the richness of it, because again, that's it's not our specialty at all. So there are many, many people out there. I know because I've worked with data visualization designers as part of my own career, um, that there are people who are able to tell really rich stories with this kind of material. Um, I don't know if anyone will take it on, um, but we'd love it if they did. So there's a professor, Amy Whitaker, who is um, hopefully going to be writing uh, academically using some of this data. Her work's mm -hmm. fantastic. Um, we've definitely had requests for, for people who are writing papers. Um, it would be lovely to find uh, folks who are really interested in taking on the data in some way and making it visible to people. I love that you created a basically an analog blockchain way of uh, publicizing the data or making it public where, you know, yes, you can have it all, but you have to. Yeah. You have to pre-claim it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And we're happy to work with any degree of anonymity that seems fair. Um, but we really wanted to make sure we got a request, which we denied where someone says, can, can we have it for our HR log? And we are like, wait, so you can decide how poorly to pay people. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> You know, I was thinking that you're going to peg your pay grades and what's written here. Like that's literally the opposite of what is okay. Um, and you know, that that's a you it's not a fear necessarily because I think that, you know, human resources knew this, that the people were getting paid fairly poorly across the board for jobs that keep them twelve to sixteen hours a day most of the time. But mm. um yeah, so that's why we made it a request based service. Right, right. I, um, I, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about what's actually been going on and what continues to go on. Um, and I was, I had this actual revelation, um, today, uh, I was, I was on the subway. I, I live in New York and I was on the subway and there was an ad for people to work for the census and they're offering $25 an hour mm -hmm. and, 40 hours a week at $25 an hour is 
for 52 weeks is $48,000 a year. No one's going to work that. So essentially it's a four $5,000 a year job for little to no experience. And that entry level job in the museum sector with a master's degree, um, yep. especially as a registrar. And if you have to live in New York, that's essentially uh, a, a really hard life. So uh, especially considering you've got student loan debt, et cetera. So uh, I, I had that kind of context that just kind of came up. And, you know, so obviously we've seen a lot of labor organiza- organization. Um, and have, have you seen any sort of trends in that? I mean, from my point of view, it seemed like there's a lot of, you know, people like art handlers, for example, that has been a very common, um, uh, consistent uh, you know, factor in there. What else have you seen uh, in these various movements? Sure. Well, I guess I want to put that first comment in context too, because I'm always very um, motivated too by thinking, like, what, what was I thinking getting into this profession? <laughs> and I didn't know what the salaries were. But I yeah. have to say, so I have an experience of the census because my mom used to hand out census forms. It was oh, one wow. of the jobs as a single parent that she did in the UK to keep the roof over our head. And she would take her three children and we would help put them into people's letterboxes. And she raised three kids um, on... Uh, less than half of what that census maker will make. And so when I think about the um, wage that I have, I don't yet have kids. Um, I always put it in that context because although we may be underpaid and overqualified, there are always, you know, scores of people who are way more underpaid Mm -hmm. and more deserving of the qualifications that they may not have been able to access, that we have been able to access debt or no debt. So I think it's always really important to put that in context um, very quickly. That being said, um, yes, I have seen a lot of, um, I think we have as a collective, and I think we've, we've seen as a... Uh-oh, we lose you? Um, unions as a place to um, focus efforts in order to win... Um, not even to win, in order to assert the rights that we should have at work across the board from salary transparency to cost of living wage increases to thinking about what it means to um, raise a family, whatever you're going to call that family. For me, it's a husband and a cat, but it might be different for some other people um, to be able to take the time that you need, whether it's for an aging parent, a new child, or just for yourself and a new partner or, or, or your friends. Um, and I think the... the um, professions within the museum that have really pioneered the way and we really owe them a huge set of thanks are um, art handlers, uh, security officers, certainly education actually because a lot of people who are teaching in museums in one form or, an, or another are used to being in a union because they have other teaching gigs and they're required to be in a union in those. Mm-hmm. Um, projectionist unions as well, film um, for places that have um, those types of capacities as a cultural organization. Um, so yeah, seeing the new museum, I come from being at MoMA where, you know, a union has been there since uh, the early 1970s and it's not unusual at all. And in, in, you know, I was very grateful for it actually when they tried to strip parts of our medical uh, coverage away and, you know, that was uh, stopped because there was a union. Um, I really see unions as being, um, and I know it's, you know, blasphemous to say in the US where you're meant to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, but I come from Scotland where you basically join a union of birth and um, it's not an unusual concept at all. Um, I do really strongly feel that although unions are not a, you know, a 
a, a panacea by any means. They're a really, really useful way. If you work hard for them, if you really set the tone, because it's not something that um, you have to work as hard to make, to shape it, much like politics, actually, much like any kind of politics. You can't just sit back and say, well, I want this person, now please make the world a better place. For me, a union is the same thing where you say, I elected these group of people to help govern my professional life. Um, and I will be uh, an active part of that electorate to make sure that I hold them to account and that my workplace is healthy because of my participation in it. And so I do think if you are able to get to that stage, um, that a union can be a very healthy thing to have and should be part of any workplace, but certainly in a museum, yes. Yeah. I'm curious, do you feel like there are some successful models that are already in existence, um, maybe in the business field, not necessarily the not-for-profit field, that you feel could be transfer transferable to the museum field? In terms of unions or in terms of just good practices in the, um, in the labor in general? I was thinking more in terms of unions because I, I just don't, I mean, I can tell you from my perspective in Florida, there certainly are unions, but it's not common the way it is up in the Northeast. Yeah. So sometimes it's easier to understand how to make things happen for yourself if you can see it reflected somewhere else. And I was curious in that regard. Um, I think that there's, uh, you're, you're right, there's a stronger history of um, unions, as far as I understand them in the US, in the North and um, certainly in the Northeast. Um, unions and museums are an unusual um, thing that they're not um, as, they're not incredibly widespread at all and haven't been. I think this is why there's been a sort of um, real interest as they've come mm. to fruition in the last um, year or so. The Guggenheim Museum of the Art Handlers Union at the New Museum, um, the, um, the precedent setting of the um, union at MoMA. Um, I think in terms of um, models, there, there aren't great ones for the museum sector, which is why there's been a lot of conversation happening between um, MoMA as a union and the New Museum and the Guggenheim sort of helping the, and the Fry Art Museum and the Marciano Foundation um, mm. and people sort of helping through networks. We do actually, that was our third spreadsheet as part of art and museum transparency. We put together um, a set of resources for any art or museum cultural organization thinking about unionizing. And so that's linked to on our Twitter page. And it, um, shares the contacts, the main steps, a kind of glossary for um, how one might start exploring this within one's work workplace. And I have no doubt, like I'm absolutely certain that we're going to see, um, I know that we will see more unions occur in um, museum spaces in the next year, in 2020. Um, mm. As you say, it's going to be interesting to see geographically where that happens. Um, but I think it's a little bit like, I don't know, very, a very nice organic virus sort of spreading out um, through not just geographic networks, but that's one of the beauties of Twitter and online presence that you now see these really wonderful connections being able to be made um, across networks that form digitally and kind of atomized perhaps geographically. There's no physical box, but there's a, a way of knowledge sharing that happens very generously and generatively um, in a digital media. I mean, this is a, this is an important point because uh, originally I'm from the South, and um, there is a, a true hatred of unions, um, and I don't know if it's fear based, uh, but whatever the case, I, and, and there's, there's business leaders that say, "Hey, great employees unionize," I, I'd love that. that. That's pretty much um, the opposite of what most people would yeah. would want. For sure. um, so there's, there's, there's two parts to this question. One, 
what what can you do without forming a union? Uh, and then, um, well, go ahead and, and, and run with that for a second. Yeah, so without forming a union, I think there are two things. Or I think there's one thing, and I can um, sort of speak to its organization that we've experienced and then think about it more broadly. The thing that you can do is express solidarity with your colleagues, and you don't need a union to do that. In fact, you don't need a union at all if you are able to form a really close relationship with a majority of your colleagues and to work with one another for one another. That's what a union is in essence. And that's what our museum transparency has ended up being. And I think that we've been able to do some of that work through the Twitter sphere, through the online sphere, through being able to amplify this message again and again. Um, we've been able to connect people where they might need help with people. We've been able to, you know, uh, one might say call out, others might say draw attention to. Um, and I think there's a real fear generationally of sort of saying, uh, excuse me, X is wrong. It's seen as call out culture. I take issue with that. I think we always do it very um, politely. Um, and we say, you know, I think we see something wrong here. For example, a couple of, a couple of days ago on the Met Museum's website, um, mm. there was a job posting that asked for somebody's salary history, which is illegal to do. Um, and as soon as we said very gently, hang on a second, I don't think that's okay. It was brought to our attention by somebody else. Um, then uh, the Matt said, oops, our bad, so sorry, that escaped our oversight, we will correct it immediately. Props to them, that's great, they did that. Um, so I think without a union, it's still very possible to express solidarity and find ways to be good colleagues with one another, to exercise your rights, to do things like share your salary or to do other things that can be helpful to one another, to not always think of yourself, but to think about this sort of collective effort um, and to sometimes speak up to think about, you know, well, why did you get into this field in the first place? Again, probably not for the money, but you probably do have a moral compass. I've met some of the best people of my life in this field. And so if you're willing to um, say when it counts, you know, you don't have to be a, a warrior for it all of the time. It can get very um, wearing and you can feel very vulnerable. It's not always very comfortable and people have different levels of agency. But if you are able to say at least once in a blue moon when it counts, I don't think I feel comfortable working with somebody if they're not paid. Um, so I, I can't do it. Um, or is it possible that we might think about you know, X together as a better workplace environment. Um, whatever that takes, I think if somebody commits to do it once a year, if everybody in an organization does that once, once a year, then you, you start to have a better work, in, work environment. Right. I mean, and then there's, you know, starting a union is kind of a, is a really sort of, especially in the museum field, it's a very antagonistic. It's something where it feels like, you're trapped in a corner and the only other option is to start a union or a walkout. You know, we saw last year, the museum of London had a major uh, yeah. walkout. Um, this is not a, you need, there's fair jobs UK, which is also fighting this battle. Um, and um, so um, how, how do you do this in a way that doesn't pit you against how, how do you do something that is, and how do you do it in a way that isn't antagonistic yeah. and isn't confrontational? So, well, I mean, it's like anything with um, asking for something that you think to be correct in terms of the ask and isn't asking something outside of your pants. Yeah. We're allowed to organize, like that's okay. But yes, of course, I mean, we've seen with the Marciano Foundation that um, that can have horrific, very real, very concrete ramifications and consequences when you're dealing with people who make a very unethical response or a response that um, has very little consideration for people's lives and livelihoods. 
Um, I do think, though, you know, there's a there are ways and ways of doing anything, and I I don't think there I don't think it's a good idea to go into forming a union because you want to retaliate, get confrontational, or in some way engage in um, uh, unconstructive behavior. You work in the workplace that you choose, and most of us do choose to do this. We have a privilege in choosing to do this. None of us, and I have worked in jobs, and I think many of us have worked in jobs where we haven't had a choice. We've had to do it to be able to pay the rent at a certain moment in time. There's less choice. we are working in places that we have chosen. And so we don't want to make them confrontational spaces. We want to make them constructive spaces. And I think if you approach it in that spirit, you're probably not always going to get met in that spirit, but sometimes you might. And so Klaus Biesenbach totally surprised me when he did at least so far meet um, the demands of his workers in LA with that spirit. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, then you have the new museum, which is really known for its very progressive exhibitions that hired union busting lawyers um, as a response to the union drive there. You never know what you're going to be met with, but as long as you're approaching what you're doing within the legal limits of what's okay and um, with a very constructive and um, thoughtful approach to what you're doing, you know, at some point you make a choice where you want to, you um, engage with that or not complain about your workplace you have two choices like you can either be you know a little worried about the the no cost of living raises and the the lack of diversity in your workplace maybe that doesn't matter to you because you have independent means maybe that doesn't matter to you it's not a priority to you in your life um i think it is though for most museum workers because they get into the field because they care deeply about those types of things and so you can either complain about those types of things and do something about it in a constructive way or zip it like there's there's no for me at least no kind of medium space people have different levels of privilege to engage with that and different levels of agency and comfort but um, I think that's a fairly clear choice there. Yeah. I, I actually, I have so many questions and so many tangents I'm going to go off on, <laughs> but um, we only have about 15 minutes uh, left. And so I do want to sort of relate this to, you know, the collections management, collection stewardship yeah. uh, profession a little bit more. And you brought up the, um, the, the fact that this is tied into diversity and this has sort of um, been a, a recurring theme uh, with, few years and I want to you know I in, in a way this is sort of a just another way of accessing that discussion uh because it's it's linked with paid internships and and, and pay grade and all that stuff so um and uh, publicly declaring salaries etc so I, I mean how I mean and, and and I mentioned to you when we were setting this up that we were very concerned, you know, kind of going back to the the very revealing, though not surprising, uh, Carnegie Mellon AMD study that, that was released in 2015 that uh, showed that the registrars were the least diverse uh, segment of the museum community. And that's something we've been trying to sort of wrestle with and, uh, and deal with in ARCs. But uh, I don't know if you have any more insight on, on that and how labor relates to diversity and accessibility. 
For sure. I mean, I, there are so many sort of um, simple, no-brainer sort of thoughts about that and then really complex ones. Everything from, you know, if the lowest wage in a pay scale is zero, then um, everybody else's wages are suppressed. So then you have a field that relies on people who are willing to work for no or little money. And um, you have to be privileged or of some kind of independent means or, you know, be able to work five jobs. And so that you know, takes out of the equation anyone who has any kind of caring role, um, whether it's for children or, you know, of any, any elderly age or anyone in between, um, so that you, you really are looking at young childless people most of the time um, or young people without any kind of intergenerational caring responsibilities. Um, and then, it, you know, unpaid internships just as a, as a, um, a, a whole sector into itself if you, you're basically asking then people an entry fee into the field, um, which is, again, something that completely stops diversity at the door. However, we might term, however, we might interrogate that very under-interrogated word, what does diversity really mean anyway? Um, and then you have lots of um, so-called pipeline positions, which are usually contingent, um, so the fixed term, one year, two year, three years. Um, I don't see many of those job descriptions, although I think this is going to change, and I really hope it does. I know we have folks here actually thinking about this in really great thought leadership ways. Um, but uh, none of them really talk about the professional development responsibilities of the institution that come along with asking people, inviting people in um, because of their diverse backgrounds and being able to signal then that the institution is at least thinking about um, diversifying their workforce. Um, I really feel very strongly that if those contingent positions are going to stay as pipelines, there should be somewhere very, very clearly in the job description what they will be, um, what the institution will for that person over that fixed period of time to help them otherwise that pipeline needs a plumber and i don't see very many plumbers in our industry um and then also just the issue of um the kind of subconscious bias in hiring practices we know even if we try to overcome it that we often hire in our own image um we are often you know and, and that might mean like people who look like us people who might behave like us people who come from the same cultural backgrounds people who come from the same schools like whatever it is um you know you know as well as i do when you meet someone and there's some kind of shared common experience there's sort of a bond that forms whether it's in a hiring process or not um and I think that happens like uh, ad infinitum in our field. So it becomes very difficult to say to people like, be that self-aware. I mean, we need to be as a profession, but become so self-aware that you can really actually break with some of the traditions that you've inherited and start to look in very, very different ways at the 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 reasons you hire someone, the reasons you gravitate towards someone, the reasons you maybe try and find someone who's way overqualified because it's going to make your life a lot easier. Um, there are so, so many ways that our labor practices um, from unpaid internships to subconscious hiring bias really um, make for the fairly undiverse field that we have at the moment. Right, right. I took a lot of notes. <laughs> <laughs> an expert in this area there, there are some fantastic um human resources experts for example um or you know folks who really are thinking about better structures for, from everything like i was just speaking to um 
very well-known artist the other day uh, who was talking about the ways in which she imagines board structures being different, allowing for staff committees, community committees, artist committees to be part of the board structure, which is a really smart and thoughtful idea. Um, or to think about, um, you know, the Rooney rule in hiring in um, uh, sports, for example, where you really have to make sure that you are looking at a diverse pool of candidates and your final two, four, whatever it is, um, includes uh, people of color or people who are historically underrepresented or marginalized within whatever field that you're working. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a lot more work for people. And I think people either don't want to do it or just it doesn't even cross their minds to think about this. And so it's not um, set at an institutional high level as a, a necessity, a must as part of the museum institution. And at the moment it's been spoken about and um, put into action by sort of lone figures or lone, maybe even like one or two lone institutions rather than it being something that is an industry-wide policy or an institutional-wide policy. Seems a lot. Of, a lot of this effort is actually just upfront, um, and it's a time investment. But once you do, it it will sort of run itself. I mean, I mean, you still have to be aware of it. But but when you have a, a diverse uh, group of people that have assumed the responsibility of hiring, then it should multiply and amplify that uh, that workforce. Well, I mean, yeah, think about the ways in which you think about the hard points of your career or the things that were sort of turning points for you and the way in which you look for that when you read somebody's resume or you look for that when you're mentoring somebody. So I'm first generation in my family to graduate high school. I'm always looking for people's shadow resume as I'm reading their resumes. Like, okay, they've only done one internship and not the 10 that I see on some of these resumes. Okay, where, they, where were they waitressing? What were they doing? They chose to go to a state school, not an Ivy League school. They got into an Ivy League school, but they ended up up, um, you know, doing um, mentoring programs. You, you can tell from somebody's resume. And um, I'm interested in that because that was my experience. So sure as heck, if somebody is coming from um, a historically underrepresented or marginalized background, they're going to be looking for that. And it's true, we hire within our own images. I wish we would get away from that. But maybe if that's the way that we hire, then yes, if we can um, really support people coming into the field who aren't usually part of um, staff in museums, people who would like to be here, people who have expertises and stories and, and experiences to bring to the table, then I don't know that um, a museum will ever totally write its ship because it's still a space that is underwritten by a lot of very rich people. But um, if that part of the equation will be a director relationship who you worked out to, then yeah, maybe those two things could help at least um, change quite radically the, the makeup of the museum. Yeah. And, you know, so speaking of, you know, the makeup, I mean, so registrars, you know, they complain a lot about the, the high bar for entry. Uh, you know, you know, oftentimes they're required to have a master's degree in museum studies or art history. They uh, and they ultimately get relatively low compensation. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting that there's actually been very little done le very little formal organization on their part to to change this i mean it's being talked about now but they're not they're not protesting they're not walking out they're not unionizing um how should this group of people in the museum actually maybe go about it? i mean you've mentioned I've, we've talked a lot about different things i mean is this um 
is this something that uh, you would recommend? Or I mean, mostly just speaking, speaking up and advocating, maybe perhaps. Yeah, I think it is about speaking up at the end of the day. I think it's about finding commonality, whether it's, um, I don't know if we're thinking specifically about the field of registrars, um, finding out ways that workplaces can improve uh, family leave, for example, whether it is aging parent, child, or whatever you call your family, um, especially because registrars are often called upon to do a lot of careering. And so you um, end up doing, you know, a fair amount of travel or having to work kind of, um, you know, odd hours. And so I think that um, if there's a, a particular issue that's uh, local to a registrar's experience in a museum, what might it be to come together around that and try and put together a set of guidelines and then really just speak up? Because I think a lot of the time, um, organizing should take time and it should be careful and it should be thoughtful, but there's also something to say, to be said for doing things in beta and just saying something, speaking up, doing something, um, asking folks like, do you want to join in with you know, X movement or X idea? Um, so yeah, I would say finding commonality and solidarity is a good thing. I would also just say, but yeah, join a union. Right. Right. Um, maybe, I don't know that that arcs per se can can advocate that. That's a discussion for the board. But uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it should be a topic. One of the things uh, that we've been trying to do is stress um, the importance of leadership training and trying to um, assume higher roles. Like if if you are that kind of person that that can, you know. I mean, most registrars want to do their job because they want to work with objects. Yeah. Um, if, if you are of the personality that maybe wants to deal with the administration and you can go higher in the museum, uh, that's another way to sort of infiltrate and, uh, you know, maybe Trojan horse the... the well, I would also say, like, if you guys are the most undiverse part of the workforce in museums, which I find it hard to believe, but okay, if that's what the data says, then why don't you be the first um, museum profession, like subset of a museum profession to say, no more unpaid interns. I'm not taking them for credit. I'm not taking yeah. them for no money. Just no more unpaid interns. The bar is no longer that you have to pay to enter this profession. The bar is going to be that it's either a paid internship or a job, and that's it. Because if you're having to make a master somewhere, which I think is daylight robbery most of the time in the US, I don't think most of the skills that I use on a daily basis, I definitely did not need. Um, I would not have found in a graduate program in museum administration where a lot of people have to go through in order to get their masters. Um, so yeah, why not call that the first, you know, part exactly. of Exactly. Um, Amanda, do you see yeah. any, any uh, Any questions on Twitter? I haven't seen any on the- No, I haven't seen any questions on Twitter. I've also madly been taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> we will There's be a lot of great information you're sharing, Michelle. I just, a lot of good things that people can hear, absorb, and then take, take home with them and think about, and think about how it relates at their own institution, in their own field, as you say, um, as we as registrars or collection specialists. We've like had little conversations about things, you know, like on listers, we're now, we expect this when we post certain things about internships. We expect this when we post certain things about salary. But and that's made change happen. And there's yeah. small steps, but I'm I'm hoping to see more steps coming down the pipeline in the next you know yeah. six months, the next twelve months, the next eighteen months, because yeah. it's 
really disheartening to me to know that we're one of the most undiverse areas of the museum field. Um, and as John has already mentioned, there's so many roadblocks just getting there. Yeah. Uh, it, it kind of baffles our, our minds a little bit. And when we had um, our keynote speaker at the ARCS conference and, and our follow-up interview with her, uh, we talked about that a lot. Like the fact that, I mean, I, I mean, I expressed it myself. I, I really like my master's degree. I'm happy I did it, but it does absolutely nothing for me in terms of what I do on the daily. Yeah. I can write a pretty good email. I yeah. have great research skills. <laughs> I mean, like that doesn't do me good when I'm a registrar. No, the, the Excel spreadsheets, uh, the, the Google Docs, the um, sense of organization I have and the interpersonal skills I have come from my nanny and career. Um, yeah. 100%. The way I interface with people comes from um, having to care for very young people who have not always been able to verbally express what they need and to be able to sort of think very carefully about what it is to keep a calm environment, to keep an environment that people want to feel good in, to feed people on time so no one has a melter, um, to you know express firmness when I need to do that, to be organized in advance so I'm not left hanging without, you know, you, you never go out without a diaper bag, you also never go out to an install without X, Y, and Z with you. And I, mean, I think that's, you know, the truth of working with parents so often is that they don't mess around. Like, they, they know how to get stuff done efficiently. And um, they, they also don't take any prisoners most of the time. <laughs> it's so funny you say that because I often think, man, one day I'm going to be a great parent because I am this, 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 and this at my job. <laughs> totally. And so I think that um, there's a joy in graduate work. I, fi I find excellent writing skills. Well, you know. I'm a better writer, I will say now, than I was before my graduate degree. Great research skills. There's a, there's a lot of joy in education. But if we're thinking about the ways in which we need to prepare ourselves for labor forces in the museum, it's not by getting into $100,000 of debt to learn how to use a lot of administrative tools. Um, and I feel very, very strongly the other thing we could probably all organize around is saying, you know, go to a state school, go to somewhere that is not going to take tons of your money for these types of courses. Um, mm. Go to somewhere where you can either get a free ride or it's going to be low cost or you can do it part-time while you're working because those are all really, really legitimate ways to get those professional qualifications if you feel you need them, if the field feels you need them um, without having to take on massive debt. For sure. Um, do you have... Uh, a second longer to, to answer. Um, sure. So, uh, what 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 do you feel have been some some of the successes uh, as a result of the the spreadsheet and and the advocacy that not only you but other others have uh, been um, advocating for? Yeah, I think the two really. Um, concrete ones are that this is still a topic. This hasn't dipped. It wasn't just a one-line headline. Um, and I think that really um, makes it clear and something that we've said often actually at Art and Museum Transparency, you have to be able to write your own stories about this. You cannot rely on the New York Times to come save you with a headline and one story. Um, although it's delightful when news outlets do cover this as a labor issue. Um, but you have to be very vocal about that to keep it as part of the everyday conversation in your field and beyond your field. Um, so I think that's a very concrete thing that we and many other people, especially people before us, have been doing. Um, and then I also think that the other concrete thing that's come out of this is that people's salaries have changed. I've had individuals get in touch with us. Um, we've had um, departments uh, report that they sat down with their department head and, you know, 
department-wide the pay structure changed. And so I, I do think that um, it's a pretty powerful tool if someone is going into a negotiation. I have to say that in, now in some states, people have to state up front, um, Massachusetts is one of them, um, what the salary range is. And um, that's super helpful. There are also states now, including Mass and um, New York, where you can't ask for a salary history. So right. the law is catching up with this as well. But one concrete outcome is that pay has changed in some spaces and sometimes dramatically. Um, so I think that's been a useful core outcome. I don't think it's changed for everybody, but I think it's been in some cases you know, quite profound in terms of its change. Um, and I have one last question. Um, and maybe, I don't know if Amanda has any others, but um, do you, can you point to some institutions that maybe are good models uh, like uh, for proper behavior and, and are, are actually doing all of the things that you're advocating for? That's a really good question. Um, I want to actually say, and I need to go back and make sure, if I'm telling you a lie right now, I'll go back and check the website and we can update this somehow. But I want to say, I'm sure it was the Corning Museum of Glass. I was kind of blown away by um, their mission statement. And when I read their job postings, they seemed very much geared towards that too. Um, I have to say, actually, when I applied for my job, um, I felt really delighted that my curatorial role was being advertised as something that was visitor-centric and mission-driven. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's what I talked about in my interview. I was really interested in that. That's what I've written in my strategic plan. And so um, it gave me license to really embrace those things that I found important. But I don't know that there's any institution that's like nailed it, but I think that's okay. There's no right. perfect institution and I don't think we can make our institutions perfect. That's not the benchmark that we're going for. Right. Um, every person is fallible and institutions like these especially are run by humans mm. and so it's not possible to just knock it out the park every single time but i think people if they're really truly thinking about changing in ways that we want to see um are going to be writing more thoughtful job descriptions are going to be thinking more thoughtfully about hiring practices um and are going to stop doing really shitty things like not paying their interns yeah, exactly. So the paid internships, people like that. That I think is the baseline for a, a good institution right now. Yeah, yeah. Arcs has stopped uh, publish publicizing unpaid internships on its website, and um, it's 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 definitely. I'm happy to see that that's actually you know taking fire. So, yeah. Um, anything else from you, Amanda? I don't have any specific questions, but what I hope some of our listeners will take away from this is that people should feel empowered. Um, I mean, you have your own set of power when you come to the table, when you interview for your job, when you come to your supervisor and you ask for certain things. I hope that people will hear from our discussion that they have resources, they have outlets, they have colleagues, there's, there's strength behind them to prop them up. They're not alone. And I hope that they take that power and they engage in a, in a useful and meaningful way for themselves, for the future of our field, for the future of their department, <laughs> for all those things. I think oftentimes we forget that we actually have a lot to offer. Yep. When you embody that power of other people and it serves you well, then give it away somewhere. Always pay that karma forward. <laughs> exactly. Um, we do have one response from uh, the chat on YouTube tonight. And Michelle, I think you'll be interested in this. It's from uh, the founder of Arcs Chat, Mark Schlemmer, who's. Hmm. 
pointed out that you were his internship coordinator at the Google. Was and I really Mark taught me a lot actually. That was one of the joys of that relationship. Yeah, he was fantastic and has gone on to have this amazing, stellar, really fascinating career. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So you over- oversaw his unpaid ten- internship. I did indeed. Yep. <laughs> yes, I did. Those were the days. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, never to be seen again. Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> so. Well, um, unless there's something else, I think that's a good spot to, to end things. Thank you so much for having me. And um, as ever, if there are questions that arise after this or people want to get in touch, um, I'm very happy to be emailed, to chat further, or to be taken to task for anything that I've said. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, how do we take uh, Michelle to task? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> But thank you very much, Michelle, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, listeners, you can find and follow Michelle and everyone else at Art Amazing Transparency at AM Transparency on Twitter. Um, we have also, we will also include links to things we've talked about, articles we've referenced, any changes or corrections that we've made. We'll link them in the description box below on the YouTube channel as well as in the podcast. Um, thanks everyone for being a part of this Arts Chat podcast. Um, if you've enjoyed our discussion and our topic. Uh, please share and subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date on all of our future chats. Also, remember to rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, we value your feedback and suggestions, and we want to continue to grow our platform to best serve our community. Um, you can find us where you get all of your favorite podcasts. I guess everyone else can stay tuned for our chat next month. It's going to be with Jackie Cabrera on Couriering. It's going to be um, a little bit of a foreshadow to the upcoming Courier Workshop that ARC is going to be hosting in March. Um, you can follow us at Arcs for All on Twitter to stay up to date. You can also view our live stream on the Arcs YouTube channel where you can subscribe and get notifications. And all of our uploads, the Arcs Chat Podcast is produced by the Association of Registrars and Collection Specialists. So I guess until next time, happy chatting, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Good night. Bye. Bye.